So we are in the book of Nehemiah. I want to encourage you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. It's in the, it's in the first half of the Christian Bible. So if you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, uh, it's in the Old Testament, which is, which is the front part of the Christian Bible. And it's, I don't know, a handful of pages. Uh, flip it to your left. Chapter 7, Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to be in chapter 7 and a little bit of chapter 8 this morning. And I want to just open with a question. What is your highest authority? What, what helps you make the most important decisions in your life? Or helps you arbitrate the, the hardest choices of life? Like who to sleep with? Or whether or not to lie on your taxes? Or to cheat on a test? We all have an ultimate authority. What is it for you? The authority could be your desires or, or maybe the fear of disappointing family. Whatever it is, every person goes to an ultimate authority in their life to make those decisions. What is it for you? For thousands of years, Christians have said that their ultimate authority is a crucified and risen Messiah named Jesus. He was the Word made flesh. Jesus was God's clearest expression of His will. And God also gave us a written expression of His will called the Bible. For many, uh, for, for many people, having an ultimate authority like the Bible is scary, right? Because it, it is, they, some, some of us see, as, see it as a little too restrictive, a little too impersonal. But I want to argue with you this morning that if the Bible is written to reveal the perfect will of a perfect and eternal God, then it must not be too restrictive, but freeing. Those who submit themselves to the right teaching of the Bible find that there is great freedom in it. At the, the gym I go to, there's this sign that says, discipline equals freedom. Those who submit themselves to the right teaching of the Bible find that there's great freedom in it, like the discipline of restricting yourself to going to the gym at 6 a.m. every day for six days a week leads to a freedom. So restricting yourself to God's word as your ultimate authority, as your ultimate truth, leads to life exactly as you were made to live it. And that's what we want to see. That's what we're going to see in Nehemiah 7 and 8. God has God is sovereignly has directed by his will the return of these exiles, this, these Israelite people who have, who have been exiled into Babylon and then Assyria because of their sins against God, because of their, their law-breaking against God. And he has exiled them, but now he's returning them. 
He is, we have seen in the, the first part of Nehemiah, which is this great narrative with a, a bunch of episodes in it. And we have seen in the first half, one through six, that God is, he is regathering his people, he's returning his people, and he's rebuilding the wall and the city. And how will this people, how will this people come back to the city? What will renew them? What will restore them? And we see that in Nehemiah 7, and especially in chapter 8, we see that it is God's word that reestablishes his people as worshipers in the land. God has a purpose for regathering his people in the land, his, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, back into Jerusalem. He brought them from exile to renew them. So this is the God who rebuilds and restores. This is the God who rebuilds his city and restores his people. He renews them. He reforms them. To, he brings them back to forgive them of their sins. And, and now he is reestablishing them by his word. And so in this sixth episode of Nehemiah, the story of the God who rebuilds and restores, we are in the, the second half of the season, right? We're not quite binge-watching it. It's like old-school television where you have to wait for the next week to, you know, and there's commercials involved too, right? None, none of you know about that unless you're watching free TV. It's a tough crowd this morning. Okay, so the first half was all about how God's good hand was on Nehemiah for the rebuilding of God's city in Jerusalem. So the second half will be about how God is restoring his people to worship him. God gathers his people so that he can renew them by his word. God regathers his people to renew them by his word. So there's going to be two hooks to hang your thoughts on this morning. Chapter 7, I think, is all about the regathering of God's people to worship and, and chapter 8, 1 through 8, we're going to see how he starts to do that, reformed by the word. Regathered to worship, reformed by the word, if you like to take notes. So before his people can be restored, they need to be regathered together. They need to be organized. And this is what chapter 7 is all about. You'll, you'll notice that in chapter 7, there's a, a, a list of a bunch of names. I'm not going to read all that. We're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're just going to make some notations about some of the other verses. So hear God's word, Nehemiah 7. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the provinces who came up out of the captivity 
of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. This is God's word. Now, one of the first things we notice is how good God is to use the, the, the gifting of, of his people. And Nehemiah is not part of the clergy. He's, he's a layperson. He's a, he's a governor. He's, he, he's in the government. And, and, and God, in his kindness, uses the administrative acumen of Nehemiah to reestablish and resettle his people back in the land. So God continues to use Nehemiah's gifting. The wall had been built, and now the people needed to be brought back together. And you, you just notice that Nehemiah does three things. He, he sets up the doors and appoints people for, for temple worship, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. And that's going to be an important thread as we move along. And God is, God is using his, his gifts to establish his people not, not as a clergy member, but as a, as a layperson, as a governor, as someone who works in the government. Number two, he appoints his brother and Hananiah to take charge over the gates. There were, there was, it was still, a, uh, you know, the republic was on the razor's edge, as they say. Uh, the, the kingdom was, was coming back together, but there were few people in the land, and, and many people were, were trying to destroy Jerusalem. And, and so he set up... He set up his brother and Hananiah, and he says, open the doors, open the gates late, and close them early. People can come in and and go out during certain times, but we need to protect God's people. So God uses his his governmental acumen, his administrative acumen to to guard and to keep his people in verses 2 and 3. Because there is more city than people, he begins to organize the people according to the genealogical record in verses 4 through 6. And, uh, and, and in, in the remaining uh, passage of, of the list of all the names, there, what, what becomes clear in the genealogical record is, is the categories of people. It, 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 God names these families and where they're from on purpose. He knows them by name and by their place. But the main thing we want to notice is that uh, the, these four things... The genealogical record shows us that that there is a small group of exiles coming back to help with the work. In in verse 56, it says less than 50,000 people. This group was was small, but it was made up of both lay people. Most of us in this room are are people who who have regular jobs in the the nine-to-five world, and uh, that was the same with the people coming back to Jerusalem. Most people here are, are not clergy members, but it was made up of both lay members and clergy members, verses 8 through 38. It was a small group, but God was going to use them to reestablish worship in his land. The second thing we noticed is that worship was a high priority. So the lay people were coming back, verses 8 through 38, but so were the clergy. And you notice these categories of people that are mentioned. It's, think of... Think of how they had lost their worship over the years in exile. Just think about yourself over the few years of COVID. What was it like? You know, when we first went to Zoom church, it was like, oh, this is kind of fun. And, and uh, this is, you know, we get to 
We can have church in our pajamas, or, uh, you know, uh, if you wanted to keep your camera on, you probably needed to get dressed and, and ready. But over f- more than two years of COVID, over 50, 100 years, they're, here they are in this place away from home, and they've lost their worship. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, is an example of that. Daniel couldn't even pray in his own home three times a day without getting thrown into the lion's den. Think of how, think of how over the two years you missed the gathering of God's people and, the, and, 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 and what it was like to hear God's word preached in a group and not over a, a, a disembodied medium. This is, this is just like the exiles away from home. You can understand why they wanted to get back to their religious way of life, and you can understand that too. And so God is bringing back, he's, you'll just notice in, in verses 39 through 42, he's bringing back the priests. And the priests were in charge of the sacred tasks in the temple and, and the sacrifices, etc. And in verses 43 through 45, he's bringing back the Levites. And the, the Levites were like the set-up teardown team. They, you know, they, they had to they roll up the carpets and take up the tent and move it on to the next place. And the Levites are broken down further into these other categories. The, the priests and the Levites, the Levites were singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants in the, in the remaining verses. And here God was bringing back all of these people connected to the temple. And, he, and he's going to establish temple worship. That's the expectation of everybody. God is going to bring us back into the city, and we're going to be able to worship God just like we did before. And one of the things we should notice, dear friends, is that God, in doing this, cares about both individuals and their worship, their gathered worship, their corporate worship. He preserves these people. He cares about individuals. He preserves these people's names in a record that we're reading 2,000 plus years later. He cares about the people and their families. He, he names them both by their family names and, and some of them from where they were from. They may have thought that they were insignificant, but God did not. They may have believed that God had forgotten them, but he had not. He knew their family names and he knew where they were from. Friend, God knows your name. He, he knows about you, and he cares about the intimate details of your life that maybe no one else does, or maybe the people that you've told and they have forgotten. God never forgets. He's ordained everything about your life, and as he's regathering these people into his land, they would have read their family names, and they would have remembered, God knows my name. Dear friend, uh, was going back to care for her, her mom who has Alzheimer's. I remember my, my grandma, Payne, uh, died with Alzheimer's. And in the last few years of her life, I remember the last time I saw her, she was frail and she was afraid. Uh, and she didn't remember very much. She didn't, she didn't remember who I was. She didn't remember my dad. But God never forgot God cares about individuals, and he also cares about their worship. 
God cares about their worship, so he brings them back, people connected to the temple to set up and worship. Another thing we notice is that if their name was not on the record in verses 61 through 65, they were excluded from the priesthood. God had, a, had an order. He, he, he demanded that the, the, the priesthood was clean, that they were connected to the, uh, the tribe of, of, of Levi, uh, to the priesthood. And if you could not prove that record, then you were excluded. God had standard, and he expected his people to keep the standard because he was holy. And the last thing we notice is that in verses 66 through 72, the people care about their own worship. And we see that by what they gave. The people come back and they know if they're going to worship God, it's going to cost them. And it, it talks about how they, how they gave this and, and that for the work and then were reminded of, of the, the work that uh, Moses had called the people to, and they gave and they gave, and at one time Moses had to say, stop, do not bring any more for the work. God has regathered his people in order to do good to them. And so he, he used Nehemiah's gifts and the people to reset his people and the worship in Jerusalem. So the, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, here we are at the end of, of chapter 7, and some of the people and the temple servants and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Look what God has done. Look what he's done. Did any of these people ever expect to be regathered and resettled in Jerusalem? Look back over your life and think about what God has done. And, and these people would have said, I would have never expected this, but here we are. A small group of God's people resettled in the land for worship. God gathers his people so that he can renew them by his word. Renew them for worship. Renew them for worshiping him. He has kept his covenant promise through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. And through many dangers, toils, and snares, I will come safely home. Now what? Now what will God do? What, what will he do with his people? Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the people. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that he had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mataniah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, 
amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Aku, Shabbatai, Hanan, Pelei, the Levites, helped the people understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is God's word. Now, friends, something surprising is happening here. It's a, it's a turn in the narrative, I think. And what is surprising is that here they are at the water gate. Now, God has gathered temple servants, priests, Levites, and the expectation would be, we're going to worship in the temple. God's going to bring it back again. Here we go. And all of a sudden, they're not in the temple. And I think probably everyone had thought, why are we not in the temple? But instead, they're, they're in a place where all the people can be gathered. And I think this signals to us, friends, that the, the place of worship is shifting from a place to a people. God's people are going to become the temple of God. We see that in the New Testament in, in, in Peter. It hasn't happened yet fully in, in this chapter in Nehemiah, but it, it will happen soon. It would happen soon. God is determined to rebuild and renew his people according to his word. And it's no longer just a place. This building is not holy. It's the people who are holy. God has, God has regathered his people so that he might dwell in them and with them. You notice in verse 1, the people came together as one person with one will. And what was their will? What did they want? What was their desire? It was to hear the book of the law of Moses. So the first time in, in Nehemiah, we see this, this new character introduced. His name is Ezra. And you would have known Ezra if you've read previous in, in the Old Testament. Ezra was one who came before Nehemiah to, to rebuild the altar, to rebuild the temple. And, and maybe it was shocking for Ezra to, to be ministering the word out in the field, out in front of the water gate. But it's God's word that gathers God's people, renews them, restores them. Ezra was one of the clergy members, and, and he was a fiery and fearless prophet who preached God's word without apology. Ezra and Nehemiah's contemporaries, now they're, they're setting up the worship of God again. And what the people wanted, they desired, they, you notice that they desired God's law to be read. It's what they, they needed. They, know, they knew they needed it. So they, they told Ezra, Imagine that. Ezra, it's time to read the law. It's the people gathered together that demand it. Dear church, branch church, please, always demand that God's word is read and preached rightly. That's, this, is, this is how revival breaks out. This is how God renews and restores his people. So in verses 2 through 8, we're just going to notice a few things. We'll return to this next week. 
we just want to notice a few things. That the desire, they desire God's word. They are attentive to his word. They agree with his word and they understand his word. So what, what can we learn? What, what we can learn, what can we learn as God's people? How do you think we should come in to the assembly as God's people? To church, how do we gather as God's church? Well, the first thing is to desire God's word. I know Sunday mornings are hectic and reckless, especially for some of us who have children, but probably for everybody, and, and it's, you know, you're sort of ending your weekend, and you're trying to gather with God's people, and, and sometimes the desire for the word is, is not always top of mind, as they say. Notice what Job says, though. Job, in Job, after he's afflicted, he says this about God. Job said that he treasured the words of God's mouth more than his portion of food, more than his daily food. He treasured God's word because he knew that's where life was. God's people need to be nourished. We, friends, all of us, including me, need to be nourished as we come into the land, as we come and gather as God's people. It is God's word that will fill them up and, and make them whole. Like a, like a malnourished man desires a hearty meal. So God's people desire God's word. And God is free and lavish in dispensing with it. He, he, he lavishes, he spreads the table wide. How, how should we come in and gather as God's people with a desire for God's word? Notice, secondly, in, in verse 3, though, that they weren't just desirous, they were also attentive being desirous is not enough. You can be hungry, sit down at a meal, but if, if you're not attentive to putting the food in your mouth, you will not have your hunger satisfied. So being attentive as the word is read and, and preached, being attentive to the word means being in the place where you can feast on it and attend to feasting on it. It's being an expositional listener. Well, one of the things we like to we we are convicted to do at the branch is to preach expositionally. That is the point of every passage. We want it to be the point of our sermon. So, as a as a listener, what is the point of this sermon? Now, maybe I haven't made that clear, but what does the Bible say? What is, what is the point of, of what God has written down here? And how does it contribute to the rest of the story of the Bible? We come in with a desire for God's word and attentiveness to God's word. Being an expositional listener, what's the point of the passage? How does it break down in its parts? And how does it apply to my life? We can put ourselves in a place we can feast on it. On your lap in the morning. Or your AirPods in the afternoon in a small Bible study, or among God's people on Sunday. And friends, the more, I just want to encourage you, the more you read the text, the more it will become alive to you. So if this is the first time you're reading Nehemiah 7 and 8, uh, you'll, you will get more out of it if you read it through the week. If you, if you read it as your daily bread, it's more important than even your daily food. 
And the goal is not just Bible intake, to have as much Bible in your head as possible. There's, that's not bad, but that's not the goal. It's possible to have memorized the Bible and for the Bible not to change you. The goal is to understand and be changed. And you notice in, in verse 6, it's not just desire and attentiveness, but it's also agreement. In verse 6, the people say, amen, and amen. Ezra praises the Lord. He, he reads the book, and then he praises God, and all the people say, amen, and amen. That, that amen, they lift their hands, and they bow their heads, and that amen, and amen is just, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I agree with what the Word says. Desirous, attentive, agreeing, and understanding. And, and I almost wanted to put understanding before agreement, but I, I think the passage has agreement before understanding on purpose. I think it goes back to the introduction. What is your ultimate authority? Whether you fully understand it or not, what is your ultimate authority? What, what do you agree with? Right? And, and, and so, in Nehemiah 8, the people agree. The people say, yes, this is our ultimate authority. This is, this is what we're going to stake our whole life on. We, we agree with this. This is what we're going to establish our worship on. And then, in the remaining verses, in, in verse 8, we, we see that the, the Levites and, and, and the priests, they went out to help people understand this is what happened as they assembled. Ezra read out the word clearly. He was standing where all the people could hear him and, and see him and see that he was reading from the, the scroll, probably Deuteronomy, but, but maybe the whole uh, of the Pentateuch. He read from early morning to midday. I mean, we're only here for like an hour and a half, guys. We could be here for, we could be here for six hours. But that, that's what Nehemiah did. He read it all, and the people said yes. And then the priests and the Levites, they came and they gave the understanding of it. They, they agreed, and then they understood. They're saying what their final authority is, whether I fully understand it or not. God is not asking them to take a leap of faith in the dark. He's asking them, who's their final authority? Well, what is their final authority? And it is God's word. Whatever it says, we will do. All of this leads to, all of this understanding leads to God establishing his people and their worship in the land. Friends, there was, there was another question in John chapter 6. Jesus just did a teaching in John chapter 6 about his, his body being bread and his blood being wine. And that if the people didn't ingest it, that they couldn't be saved. And this was a hard word. And so many disciples left Jesus. And, and uh, Jesus looks at his disciples, his, the apostles that, who later become the apostles. He looks at them and he says, Are, will you leave me too? Are, are you going to leave as well? And, and Peter looks at Jesus and says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You're our one and final authority. You have the words of eternal life. 
And he had the words of eternal life because he was the word of eternal life. Jesus Christ was the word made flesh and dwelt among us. He not only had the words of eternal life, he himself was the eternal word of eternal life. He dwelt among us. He, that word is tabernacled or, or tented among us. There's no longer a, a, a place for God's people to worship when Jesus came. He was that place. He was that tabernacle. It came down and he dwelt in us and God made his dwelling with man. He came that we might be God's dwelling place. His, his friends, his life and death and resurrection and then ascension to heaven and ascending of his spirit was the fulfillment. That, that this is when the place changed from the temple and the tabernacle to God's people. So you all, who have the Spirit of God. You are the temple of God. He, we worship Him. We could be worshiping Him outside. I'm thankful for a place and for heat, but we could, be, we could worship Him wherever, wherever we're gathered together. And it's because of Jesus' work on the cross, and, and He is the Word. He is the final Word, the final display of God's good authority over our life. And what did He do with that authority? He laid it down for his people. He gave up his authority. He, he gave his life on the cross that the Father's wrath might be satisfied with our sin. So, dear friends, as God gathers his people to restore him, God restores his people by regathering them, reorganizing his people so that they might be renewed through his word. As this is the God who restores his people by his gracious words. His words are life. Dear friend, receive them. Be healed. Be revived. Be restored. Be reformed. Let's pray. Where else can we go, O oh God? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of life. We ask that you would overcome our doubts and fears and restore us by your word. Reform us, revive us, O oh God, as your church. Restore our worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I give you a moment to, of silence to, to talk to Jesus about how he, he would like to finish this work in your hearts.